Section 32 of Charles II by Osmondary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court, Part 3. The dissolution was a council of desperation. The new elections were fought amid intense excitement under Shaftesbury's guidance. There was a great circulation of exclusionist literature and the cost of a seat mounted to a figure hitherto unknown. The result reflected the panic of the country. Charles did not appear to concern himself in the contest, and his friends were consequently at a stand whether they should pretend or no. And thus it happened that while in the last house the court had been able to reckon upon 150 steady votes with an occasional majority, it could now depend upon no more than twenty or thirty. A large number of the new members were Presbyterians, and it was felt that once more the programme of Clarendon and Danby was wiped out. One most important aspect of the change was that from this time the distinction between the Shaftesbury opposition and the country party disappeared. The term Whig henceforth includes them both. A trifling but suggestive instance of the temper of the country was the omission of most gracious before the queen's name when prayers were read at oxford before the assembling of the houses charles took one or two measures which he hoped would dull the edge of the attack an attempt was made pro forma to reconvert james whose zeal for his creed burned more fiercely than ever under the influence of his confessor and of mary of modena and who told the bishops employed that he would neither be of their religion nor pretend to be of it. On the eve of the opening of the session, he was induced to leave the country, but not before he had received the written order from Charles which he demanded, and the king's declaration rendered necessary by the growing pretensions of Monmouth that he had never been married to any one but the queen. Charles had for some while, as we learn from a manuscript diary of Sir Edward Daring, had such a declaration ready. He had shown it to Heneage Finch, the Lord Chancellor, on January 12th, and Finch asked Daring, who was dining with him on that day, to remember the fact, in case it might at any time be necessary to produce evidence of its existence. Considering the relations between the brothers, which varied on charles's part from boon companion to contemptuous dislike the steadfastness of the king to the interests of james is strikingly significant of his purpose he hates him perfectly said shaftesbury and he knows it yet he hath the ascendant over him and by little acts and importunity doth much with him and seems to govern all barillon reported to louis that charles when he talks freely in wine shows much bitterness and even aversion from his brother to make the ground still safer the king began the promised disbandment of the troops and allowed it to be understood that danby would remain in office only until the next quarter that even now he either failed to understand the situation or felt confident of his own strength was shown by his promotion of the treasurer to a marquisate his friends wrote a careful observer referring to danby do much blame him for drawing by an empty title a greater envy on him on march sixth sixteen seventy nine 
Charles met his second Parliament with a frank and able speech. He mentioned the various measures by which he had sought to remove any stumbling blocks, and declared that he would defend the Protestant religion and the laws with his life. On their side, he trusted to see a disposition to deal with the great concerns of the nation, and not to indulge their private animosities. He himself expected to be defended from calumny and danger. Meanwhile, supplies in no stinted form were absolutely necessary if the Protestant policy at home and abroad was to be maintained. He had, he added, with a careless ignoring of the anger aroused by the step, made Danby a Marquis. The conflict began with the first formalities of the session. The Commons re-elected Seymour to the chair. Charles rejected him as a personal foe to Danby. When they remonstrated, he replied, Gentlemen, all this is but loss of time, and therefore I command you to go back to your house and do as I have commanded you. Matters were equally unpropitious in the Lords. The Lord Chancellor had spoken of the King supporting by his favour the creatures of his power, and Shaftesbury dissected the phrase in Charles's presence. Shaftesbury then moved for an address on Danby's marquisate. Halifax ironically refused to believe in the fact. Shaftesbury, he said, must be the victim of a flam report. It was impossible that the king could ever be prevailed upon to do an act so ungrateful to his people. But if it were so, it was not to be borne. This, he said, looking straight at the king, who, as was his frequent habit, was in the house, standing by the fireplace for he was wont to say that a debate in the Lords was as amusing as a play. Charles for once was moved beyond his customary placidity. My God, he exclaimed, how I am ill-treated, and I must bear it and keep silence. A few days later he summoned the commons and addressed them in words which left no room for doubt. For once he took all responsibility upon himself. The incriminating letters had been written, he said, by his particular order. So far from Danby concealing the plot, the treasurer had known no more of it than he himself had chosen to tell him. He had given him a free pardon, and he would, if it were necessary, give it him again ten times over. Nevertheless, he intended to relieve him of his office and to forbid him the court. The manner in which the pardon was passed was Charles's own. Finch, the Lord Chancellor, related to the House how the King had arranged it so as to free him of all blame. His Majesty declared he was resolved to pass it with all privacy, and suddenly after commanded the Lord Chancellor to bring the seal from Whitehall, and being there he laid it upon the table. Whereupon His Majesty commanded the seal to be taken out of the bag, which His Lordship was obliged to submit unto, it not being in his power to hinder it and the king wrote his name upon the top of the parchment, and then directed to have it sealed, whereupon the person that usually carried the purse affixed the seal to it. Finch himself did not consider that he had custody of the seal while this was done, nor was the pardon entered in any office. Neither the uncompromising character of Charles's speech, nor the recital of this state farce, served to turn the commons from their course. On March 24th they demanded justice upon Danby from the Lords, for they scouted the idea that a pardon could bar an impeachment. Charles was present in the House when the demand arrived. 
he wrote a hasty note to danby warning him to leave his lodgings at once and sent it by his natural son the earl of plymouth danby's son-in-law when the messengers arrived to arrest him danby was safe in whitehall itself the lords thereupon passed a bill of banishment against him if he did not appear but avoided naming the day the commons threw it out as too moderate and sent up a bill of attainder to the lords which was passed on april fourteenth to be effective should he not surrender himself up by the twenty-first on the seventeenth danby gave himself up and was straightway committed to the tower where he remained for five years the king seemed not concerned at his parting thus with his brother and his treasurer nor what use the parliament would make of it five years later when danby was released charles received him as though his appearance was an event calling for no special notice as a matter of fact danby had remained perfectly accessible to his friends throughout his imprisonment and there are many indications that charles was in frequent communication with him as to his own course the perfect coolness of the king during the six frenzied weeks which followed weeks of what we may call parliamentary expletives in the shape of votes of excessive violence extorts our admiration once more he bided his time only interposing now and again in the turmoil of passion on april thirtieth he offered expedients of a very drastic character which would have secured the protestant religion under a popish successor if that popish successor had been willing to abide by them but these were at once rejected as a little gilding to cover a poisonous pill a fresh address for the removal of lauderdale was met by the reply that he would consider it and return an answer this attitude served only to increase the hysterical violence of the commons on may ninth they declared that any commoner who maintained the validity of danby's pardon was a betrayer of the liberties of his country on the tenth they committed his brother-in-law charles bertie for unsatisfactory answers as to the expenditure of secret service money on the eleventh a sunday they resolved to bring in an exclusion bill and they passed a vote which offered an alarming prospect that if the king should come to any violent death at any one's hands they will revenge it to the utmost upon the papists the bill for exclusion was read the first time on the fifteenth and a second time on the twenty-first charles let it go on without further intervention and there is no doubt that shaftesbury expected him to give way completely to the pressure he was soon undeceived on may twenty-third rearsby was surprised to find the king so cheerful amongst so many troubles but it was not his nature to think much or to perplex himself he had thought more than rearsby imagined on the twenty-sixth he joined the circle of courtiers in the queen's room i have just he said freed myself from the burden which weighed upon me how they have deceived themselves if they imagine that want of money would force me to extremities i shall find means to pay the fleet and manage economically it will be difficult and uncomfortable for me but i will submit to anything rather than endure the gentlemen of the commons any longer on that day he prorogued and in july he dissolved a parliament which had not passed a single act except the habeas corpus act 
even here the farcical element will obtrude itself that act an act of incalculable importance passed its third reading in the lords because the tellers in joke counted one very fat lord as ten the disappearance of danby and the consequent dislocation of the executive had led to an experiment of which temple claimed the credit though there were others who declared themselves its authors this was the formation of a new privy council of such a character that either it would work with parliament or by its great strength would enable the king to dispense with parliament it therefore included the chief leaders of the opposition and landed wealth since authority followed land was a principal qualification so carefully was this attended to that the new council held property and land equal to three-quarters of that of the whole house of commons halifax sunderland and essex possessed together more than the king there was no longer to be a sole minister like danby no important step was to be taken by the king without the concurrence of the council and in especial with obvious reference to barillon foreign ambassadors were to obtain the consent of the council before seeking audience with the king the new constitution was viewed with very various feelings while bonfires of joy were lighted in the streets while the stock of the east india company rose rapidly and the dutch displayed increased confidence barrio did not conceal his annoyance the commons received the announcement with considerable coolness and suspicion regarding it as some new juggle of the king and such of them as had not been included in the council declared that court and country livery could never be worn together charles took the whole matter and the engagements it implied with the lightest possible heart he accepted the list presented to him almost without reservation his one expressed objection was as usual purely personal it was only after great solicitation from temple and others that he consented to the admission of halifax for he did not forget the insult in the lords but once there halifax soon gained ground with the king who had the same keen sense of humour as himself to emphasise his complacency charles himself suggested that shaftesbury should be president and as usual his real views were expressed in private god's fish he said to bruce they have put a set of men about me but they shall know nothing and this keep to yourself and he noticed the omission of bruce's father with the remark he was to be left out because i do love him all this did not promise a long life to the new experiment from the formation of this council to the end of the reign the stage is occupied by a number of actors each of marked individuality who change places with kaleidoscopic effect there is shaftesbury whose sweeping victory at the polls illustrated anew the commanding influence he had secured in the country and especially in london as leader of the whigs but who was so blinded by his hatred of danby and james by his love of party warfare by his ambitions and by his immediate popularity as to imagine that the english people might be brought to suffer a bastard to mount the ancient throne there was monmouth himself with the same personal attractions as buckingham but with more than buckingham's folly posing as the champion of protestantism against his uncle james whom he confronted with insolence and insult treated with a doting affection by his putative father 
and preparing the way for a direct assertion of airship by removing the bar sinister from the arms of his coach and by accepting the title of royal highness there was halifax this great lord for indeed considering all he was the greatest in parts i ever knew sagacious temperate philosophical and cynical with rare powers of eloquence seldom exercised who as soon as he realized shaftesbury's aim took his line at once against monmouth and exclusion an essex honest able in government and finance an earnest protestant too earnest to cultivate that bantering humour which so smoothed all paths with the king of the two last no one it was said can blame them for any action in their whole lives except about the plot to them must be added the high-souled russell informed with an invincible belief in the papist design sunderland son of a famous mother a true child of the time brilliant unscrupulous dissolute an inveterate gambler at politics as at the playing tables lawrence hyde clarendon's younger son subtle and astute temple cultured and doctrinaire godolphin pliant and useful never in the way and never out of it louise de Kerouaille and barillon End of section thirty two